Yeah, yeah. Okay. There, it's recording. Okay. You did it. Okay, we're recording now. Right. Everyone suddenly stops speaking and becomes very shy, <laughs> and the meeting is effectively over from any creative point of view. All right, forget that. So this is this is where the conversation. I think before telling you how I answered the question this morning, what's a truly meaningful story for CG? What do you think? Is there really a set of criteria or is it just sort of a gut thing? Well, that was the first way I reacted and I thought we can define it negatively. We can say what it definitely isn't, right? Right. Um, does that allow us to say what it is? Typically, world over, it doesn't matter whether it's India or America or wherever, they just seem to follow a thread. Somebody picks up on one thread and everyone else seems to do that. So while they do that thread to death, there might be other angles there that simply haven't been looked at. Hmm. And that's the kind of thing that we ought to look at. If something has appeared, for example, in French media, but no one in the Eng Anglosphere is covering it, then we probably do want to talk about that, right? Yep. Sure. Trying Absolutely. to bring things to light that no one's talking about in English. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, which is which is kind of going to be a USP because we're covering something that's happened in local media, but global media hasn't been alerted off to pick it up. So uh, we're going to pick it up. The example I brought up this morning is exactly the opposite of what we want to do. I think I think I've mentioned this: a grotesque beheading in the streets of broad daylights of Paris. The U.S. media picked up, and the entire Anglophone media basically went with police kill minority. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was just beyond belief. I mean, the, the, the French were legitimately outraged by the U.S. media coverage, just outraged, because there was one after another article about why did France, why does France deserve this? Why is it so racist that people behead at school teachers? Um, I mean, seriously, the most unbelievably provincial lens, people who could not figure out that this is not the United States, that the things that the United States is going through are not necessarily the things that France is going through. And this is just amazing because France is not North Korea. It's not hard to get a journalist over here. It's, it's a cushy luxury job that everyone wants. It's, this, is not, this is not, you know, you don't get hazard pay for being in France. How can they not get this right? That's interesting. I mean, in Austria, the Chechen angle actually got a lot of play for various reasons. Yeah. 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 There's been, we've had a lot of issues in Austria integrating Chechens. Yeah, France has too. You, you, you read about that big dust up in Lyon between the Chechen gangs and the Algerian gangs. May I suggest something, Claire? Yeah. yeah. Since you, we had the discussion about uh, riot control and different takes from different police, I think that the, the goal of uh, such a thing like us should not be like um, doing reporting about uh, bad policing in Austria or bad riot control in France, but maybe to compare and to have a global vision of it. I mean, why police in France is uh, being taken by surprise by riots, which are a tradition in, in, in France, and why Austrian police has been so incredibly bad at managing one single attacker in, in Vienna. I mean, there are reasons, and uh, any coverage detailing only one uh, part of this could be, of course, biased or seen as biased, while maybe we could have a different vision and could provide something like more a global and more cosmopolitan uh, point of view, I think. 
Well, there's, there's, we're sort of converging on what's a truly right. meaningful CG story yeah, there. That was the first thing that came to my mind. I said, this is what we should do. I mean, everybody can report about what happened in Vienna, why these terrorists could uh, do this rampage alone, why the police was so bad. I mean, this is something for New York Times. We don't need this. We don't need to do this. Well, except New York Times doesn't. But whatever. They did it for uh, Notre Dame. For example, they, that was their their big journalistic triumph here. They really did a good job on that story. If they did, the, if their reporting was that good on everything in France, I'd have, I'd say, I'm fine with it. I'll just subscribe to the New York Times and I'll become a climate user. I'll do carpentry. <laughs> <laughs> we cannot do this properly. We just waste a lot of energy to give something that uh, any other media can do. Reuters can do it. New York Times can do it. Even if they don't actually do it, if they don't do it regularly, then maybe we could step in. But in such a case, I think uh, this is a global problem, as you notice. And uh, uh, I think it's, it's uh, objectively true that uh, police brutality and at the same time, police uh, uh, is being more ineffective all over the world. We know that uh, criminality, crime is not defeated by police and we know terrorism is not defeated by police. Of course, that's necessary, that helps, but something is wrong, something is happening and it's something global. So maybe we should step in and try to to cover that angle, my yeah. opinion, of course. Yeah. Well, the global angle on Austria, or one global angle, I think, and a lot of Austrians feel this way, is that it's, um, example, why is it that these right-wing populist governments seem so incompetent at actually governing anything? Which is part of what happened in Austria, and also in COVID, that the government just seems inept, and it's governed entirely by PR. Are you asking me as a rhetorical question, or are you suggesting an article? It's- it's maybe an article, something to be explored, yeah, because it's, it's definitely something that's been coming up more and more. And it's maybe a bigger picture than the police, COVID, a number of things. And it ties into a lot of the other populist governments. Yeah, they're, they're incompetent. They, obviously, they're, yes. I mean, obviously, they hate government on the one side. So they're trying to reduce the role of government, undermining the government. And how does that, you can't be a populist government, I would think, and then not provide any services for the people. It doesn't make you a lot of sense. can't do much if you're not, you don't have a well-qualified elite running things either. I think that one could, you know, as a rhetorical structure, uh, almost use the Trump administration as a model of incompetence, and then you could line up other world governments and see to what point they can hit, to what degree they can hit every point that Trump was able to hit. (laughs) I'm somewhat joking, but... (laughs) Yeah, even as a joke, I don't want to do that because it, again, it puts... America is experiencing phenomena that it thought it was immune from. It's yeah. not. These yeah. phenomena are well known to humankind. Um, it, Trump is behaving like every dictator we ever laughed at in the so-called third world. Right. We're just learning that you know, we just had some, for some reason, we had an immunity to it for a while. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, Trump did not succeed in doing what Lawrence Kabila did in you know, he, 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 hasn't, he hasn't done what Idi Amin has done. Um, yeah, we should yeah. be grateful for that. Uh, there are worse things. Yeah. Um, but it, there is, I mean, Trump could probably be put on a scale of foolish and corrupt global, global leadership, and he would probably score. I mean, because America is such a consequential country, you'd have to put that very high in the balance. You'd have to say that he probably for the amount of damage he's done per unit of power, mm. if you measured it that way, you could yeah. definitely say he tops the scale. Yeah, but from As another perspective, he does Corrupt buffoons go, he's, he's a pretty normal one. 
he's sort of come in an air at a time when Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all these sort of things have peaked. So the noise around this, I see that happening in India too, the noise around this government's actions is just so much louder. Yeah, so suddenly you turn on the electricity and the amplifier works. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit like that. It's a bit like that. And so we're actually reacting far more than we might have 25 years ago. Right. Unquestionably, human beings are experimenting with a kind of technology that is completely alien to the human experience until five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it is screwing up our minds. It is changing our sociology. Yeah. It's completely destroyed our sense of, of epistemic foundation. No one knows where it's going to go. And the, the people who start writing about this in an intelligent way, who start looking at the way these problems are connected without hysteria or partisanship, but as reporters from the future... Um, as people who are trying to figure out what this is going to look like to historians in a hundred years, what this means, I think would be doing much bigger service than people who just send this clickbait soaring around the universe. I mean, obviously, if you don't get clicks, you can't make money. That's, that's the fundamental problem. But there's got to be some way to do respectable work that's useful to people, earn a living, and get off the train the rest of the media's on. There's got to be a way. We've got to be able to crack that. If we can't crack that, then, you know, maybe, maybe we deserve the media we've got. That's a very good pitch. Thank you. <laughs> Was it? Good. I'm glad we recorded it because I don't even remember what I said. <laughs> there are a lot of phenomena right now that are genuinely global, which pe people are naturally provincial, set up cognitively to believe that other people are like they are and, or, and, and have the same assumptions they grew up with in their culture and are having a lot of trouble seeing that some of these problems are global and are not connected to Trump, Biden, or the Republicans or the Democrats, but to problems. If people are in some sense right to be rejecting globalism as a word. They're, 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 they're rejecting history. That things have happened that have changed life for everyone in the planet. I mean, one thing, the planet is now carrying more human beings than it ever has before, by far. And a few less thanks to the pandemic. And that puts certain strains on things. It doesn't mean there are too many people. It means that there needs to be more ingenuity and we need to find more ways to, to foster it. Maybe the social structures that we have right now aren't, aren't working to do that very well. But if so, it's a global problem. And precisely at the moment when, I mean, I, I, it sounds like a campaign pitch for the Democrats, but they're right. Precisely at the moment when more global cooperation is needed, people are reacting to these unprecedented social changes that make them terribly uneasy with a retreat to nationalism, which is totally unhelpful. And it's, it's not going to solve any of these problems. Yeah, but then you look at it from another Another sort of a perspective, look at it from the perspective of the people who voted for Brexit, for instance. I happened to be living in the UK at that time, and I've been there for a few years before that. The insecurity in the air was actually palpable. Given that I'd spent long periods of time in the UK, even as a child, 
you know, it wasn't just about racism. It was just insecurity. And that insecurity was something that someone like Nigel Farage just exploited. Globalization is not an easy phenomena for everyone to understand. So, no, and the first period of the great period of globalization led us right to the First World War. It's very dangerous. Yeah, it did. It, we, I mean, we are clearly in a very dangerous moment um, with global threats proliferating. And the pandemic is just the big warning sign. We've had the, the luck of not having any nuclear weapons accidents since the last two non-accidents. There are too many countries that are on the verge of proliferating right now. And the United States is clearly a, a diminished, a very diminished power, no longer the regnant superpower. And we're going we're gonna to be soon seeing international nuclear anarchy without a lot of global cooperation to limit it. It's a pretty depressing scene, but it's also a pretty exciting one because we don't know that the awful things are going to happen. And we are all talking for free around the world right now in a way that when we were kids would have been science fiction. That's a good article, too, the nuclear proliferation. Yeah, that's a good one. I don't think that one could be written enough, frankly. Especially for people of my generation. I think we all decided that was over and stopped thinking about it. I can't quite tell what your generation is. How old are you? Gen X. Oh, hold on a second. You're, you're, no, I, I'm Gen X too. And, and no, we didn't decide that was over. I never thought it was over. No, <laughs> no. Like we did. Like by 92, I, I, we just stopped thinking about it. It was a big no, thing in the 80s. After the Berlin Wall fell, I was high as a kite on, on um, the end of history until, <laughs> well, I guess like everyone, until September 11th. And I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> and history's been back since then. That's been on my yep. mind since then, hasn't it? You? Yeah, yeah but not the, not the nuclear, you know, not the nuclear threat we lived under back in the 70s and the 80s, or any second you could have missiles flying, and you always knew that anyone could press the that's button. That's still true. They are still hiding bombs at your head right now. I know, but you don't think about it the same way, right? I don't think that's well, kids, they could certainly don't have it in their heads like the way we did. Oh, they should. But there's an right? interesting question: that. Why don't you think about it the same way? Right. Why is it that at that time it was possible to impress upon people how serious this was, and it yeah. no longer seems possible to impress upon people that this is serious? In part, it was because the novelty of the weapon, or in part, it was because of you know the emergency broadcast system. This is a test. This is only a test of the emergency broadcast system. It's part it was because of physicians against nuclear weapons. Did you get them in your high school? Right. And they were a Soviet disinformation campaign, but they sure got to me. <laughs> it was yeah. only one enemy. It was very easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neither of them ever had any emergency broadcasts. Uh, everybody, every government tried to downplay it, but everybody knew that it was us versus them. It was very easy. Mm -hmm. When it's too much, too many enemies everywhere, it's like having nobody. There is not one big, powerful, bad, evil enemy that is uh, is uh, going to kill us. Everybody's going to kill us. So, well, do you think we've just sunk into total nihilism? No, on the contrary, I think it's more like uh, something people cannot cope with. It. That's it. You can see it with, the, with, the, with the, this enormous uh, massive information that we are getting every day by news. People have never been more misinformed and disinformed than now, because having too much is like having nothing. Well, so that's not true that people have never been more dis misinformed. I mean, remember, mass literacy is a pretty recent phenomenon. Most people were totally illiterate and thought the earth was flat most of the time. Right. <laughs> yeah, but they were illiterate. I mean, uh, literate people, sorry. There's so much. I have a robust defense of illiteracy right now. <laughs> 
<laughs> the literate is bad. <laughs> no, I mean, educated people were the ones uh, thinking of it. A peasant didn't care about, uh, I don't know, the, the 30 years war. He only cared about soldier, foreign soldiers uh, plundering his field. Mm-hmm. He didn't know, he didn't care why. But educated people knew. And those guys tried hard to be informed. Now, educated people, I mean, everybody's educated te- theoretically, but they aren't. Mm-hmm. A couple of months ago, I met an engineer who was getting, going to have a tender to build a building, and it was uh, an earth flatter, a flat earth. Flat, a flat, flat earth, earth engineer? Whatever, I don't <laughs> even know. Are you serious? Qualified <laughs> and to build a building? He was incredibly offended. Uh, it was actually not me. I was there, but it was my friend who owns a company, and she was going to give a tender to this guy as a subcontractor. Okay, so and this is jokingly, a corruption story, right? Not, not a lack of education story. It's a lack of education because the guy is like a couple of degrees, university degrees, and he claimed that the earth is flat. Where did and he get this? <laughs> and it's going to be the building based on gravity. Okay, but this still makes <laughs> a corruption story, Piero, because how did he get those degrees? Because everyone knows the mafia runs the education system in the South. No, I think it's just bad. I mean, just like uh, they only focus on passing exam after exam. After an an examination, you are not required to think about that anymore. And then you don't put things together. I mean, if a pilot, if an airplane pilot uh, says that the earth is flat, I will be seriously worried. But an engineer can say this. And when I say (laughs) this is bullshit, he said, like, uh, I'll send you, like, scientific evidence. And he did. (laughs) This was a video, a YouTube video done by someone. Yeah. What's, he, what's, his theory, what's his theory about what happened at the end of the Earth? I'm just fascinated by this. Uh, there is something like a, a big mountains, but there is also something <laughs> that they call like a Pac-Man theory. That somehow you enter a portal and you are on the other side, like on Pac-Man, like on a video game. But wait, what if he's right? <laughs> this is serious because there are educated, educated in other fields that can't believe such a thing. And a no-vaxxer, like just a couple of weeks ago, I argued on, on, uh, on Twitter, with a, no, on Facebook, uh, with a no-vaxxer because he was upset, he was offended when I say that his mindset led to flat earthers. And said, how can you talk about me like, like those people? Because once you deny the scientific evidence, because you don't know how can I trust this scientist, I never seen that, I don't know the formula of this vaccine, I don't know all the data, then how can you believe NASA? How can you believe uh, Galileo's? The earth is flat. It's what you see. There is a problem of epistemic rot that really does come from the academy, that is, mm-hmm. that is giving legitimacy to a lot of people's worst suspicions. Because like all enterprises, the scientific enterprise is corrupt. It's not as corrupt as, as some other enterprises, but it is corrupt. There is corruption. And, and putting science on a pedestal and saying it cannot be corrupt and they're right about everything is not the way to go. No, that's not the point, uh, Claire. Yeah, no, I, I know. I'm just, I'm just, you I'm cannot have first-hand people... evidence. You have to try. At some point, you have to trust the data. Well, you cannot... I'm just fascinated by someone who can get an engineering degree and presumably has taken an airplane once in his life, right? Hopefully. I mean, do you, do you think he'd never flown anywhere? Oh, well, probably, yes. But you know, well, there are still people arguing that 
that like uh, air companies keep you longer in the air in the air because they want you to buy more times otherwise it makes no sense to fly over uh, Iceland instead of going <laughs> a straight line to New York from Paris to New York I, I, I'm just fascinated by, by how someone <laughs> winds up in that position what's the story instead of just announcing it I'd like to know how do we get engineers who believe the earth is flat in the year 2020 they didn't teach them <laughs> You don't teach them. There is another problem with science, and it's extreme specialization. We don't have eclectic scientists. Like, I don't know, in, in the times of Newton, but even more recently, until 19th century, a, a, a scientist uh, had to be a writer, could be a poet, uh, was a naturalist, uh, a studied classics, ethics, a lot of philosophy. Now, you can't. You have to like a laser focus on some matter and we have uh, like uh, brilliant technicians who literally don't know how a, a light bulb work, uh, works well there was once a time when an educated person could basically know everything right yeah, yeah. is there is there an accepted global standard of an educated person anymore i don't think so first degree from a uh, a recognized university is generally considered educated that seems like a sort of standard from a recognized university yeah I, I think what's disappeared is that sort of corpus of knowledge that you'd expect everyone to have right if they were educated before a certain level you know you know and i i think obviously it's it's a sorry very western centric idea but that i think you sort of see it all the time now with sort of ref biblical references and liter literary references that are made and are far less understood than they would be mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. 30 or 40 years ago you know mm -hmm. you would you would just expect everyone to know the context of the bible the contents of most shakespearean plays and leading novels and i think that sort of you know the classic you know classics as well to be known to a certain level that has gone um you just reminded me of this conversation. Um, Thomas Young, who's a, a British scientist in the 19th century, is regarded as the last person to have known everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's nice to know. <laughs> but these, these, are, these are points that we can make in an intelligent way or we can make it in a stupid way. I mean, we can go around saying, look how stupid everyone is yeah. and, and, and basically mocking people for being stupid. Or we can try and figure out what's going wrong and why stupidity mm -hmm. is now in power when generally speaking in the last century last half of the last century in the west well i mean maybe stupidity and power is actually the human norm <laughs> never mind that but but now it's viewed as the re as the as the revolutionary position to take in opposition that you are now a, a revolutionary if you're acting <laughs> stupid right point. in germany the querdenker because of the querdenker, that's the people who think the alternative thinkers. Which is a wonderful word. Fighting masks. <laughs> yeah. German, ha German has such wonderful words for certain things, right? Claire, you've been in Turkey. You've been in Turkey. You've yeah. seen the, the conspiracy in Turkey. You have seen the conspiratorial mindset. Whatever they are fed from the government, from the press, from the international press, must not be true, cannot be true. It cannot be that simple. There must be something else. And this is, a, a kind, we tend to explain it um, looking at Turkish history because they have had so many coups, so many uh, like uh, deep states. Uh, real ones. conspiracies, real ones. 
<laughs> yeah, but once once the, the the you know once the magic is broken, you don't believe anything anymore. It's like when uh, the first time that you find out. Well, maybe you never in the specific case, but when you find out that your dad is not uh, infallible, that your dad can make mistake. And yes, so and I I, I was course, not joking when I said I'm glad we have a Freudian scholar among us. I think that's that's the level of psychological insight we need to make mm. sense of a lot of this. In in uh, in America right now, with uh, I guess seventy million people having voted for Donald Trump and eighty million having voted against him, the the amazing thing about Trumpism is that it includes it seems to largely include a distrust of major. Uh, media outlets so that I mean I just I only know this anecdotally and so I don't know how widespread this really is but in my experience on Facebook or Twitter especially uh, it seems that there are a lot of people who will automatically not consider anything that is reported by the New York Times or the Washington Post because those are and even though it's reporting, it's not so much opinion, but those are considered very uh, corrupt and suspect news organizations because they're, they, they're considered to have a liberal bias. And so you cannot believe anything they say, anything that's reported in those venues. And Yeah, and to some extent, both the Times and the Post have brought it on themselves by being exactly that. They've been sloppy, they've been corrupt, they've been ridiculously partisan. But you'd have to know nothing about the whole process by which the New York Times and the Washington Post were assembled and reported to believe that everything they do is a systematic dis lie meant to achieve um, you know, Hugo Chavez's goal of spreading Dominion vo voting machines around America and mm -hmm. stealing the election from Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there are such media like like Fox News. We know that the main goal of disinformation is not to make you distrust some media, but to make you think that everything is the same and no, but nothing is true and everybody's lying. Everything is the same. So the, the usual question I have when I, I ask someone, how can they believe something? not necessarily in US, in Turkey or in Italy too. The answer is always the same. Why? Do you think the, the, the mainstream media don't, uh, don't make up their news? Do you think they're not the same? So it's just like uh, everything is false, so I only trust my cousin on Facebook. <laughs> I, f I find that with um, a few of the sort of Russian um, and former Soviet expats I know in the UK. It's a big go. We don't trust what Putin says, but we don't trust what the UK government or the US government says either. You know, it's it all lies. Well, the the book that really brought this home for me and, and made me see that Putin's ex exporting this is um, everything is true and nothing is possible by Peter Pomerantsev. Have you read it? It's a very good book. Yeah. It's really worth your time because he describes this before it became a widespread phenomenon in the West. Um, and that's based on a quote from um, from Hannah Arendt about totalitarianism and everything is true, nothing is possible. Um, but he describes the entire media entertainment complex in in Putin's Russia and this this satiation with the sense that there are so many possibilities and conspiracies and no one can ever know what's true. And the way Putin would just flood the information zone with so much shit that you couldn't figure out yeah. what's true. Um, 
um, what's it called the Bellingcat website yeah. and their podcast on the shoot down of MH17 is really good on that and looking mm-hmm. at how you know the Russians just put out stories you know with no concern for their own internal na- narrative just to muddy the water yeah and and that was so successful that now I think every country is doing it I mean not yeah. every but I, I can't imagine that there's anyone who didn't see how effective that was and say we need ourselves at least a good bot army I mean that's just part of basic defense like having having automatic weapons you need a bot army this is a little discouraging. Maybe as a result of that, it seems that we've sort of reversed Marshall McLuhan's thesis, and now the message is the medium, and people are chasing. They want to get their fix. It doesn't matter who the institution is anymore. You know, saw so Fox News starts reporting actual facts, and everyone turns on Fox News in a heartbeat. And I truly believe that the New York Times tomorrow started reporting that Trump is the greatest person since sliced bread, and Trump was right about everything, then they would just embrace the New York Times. Because what they really want is to get that fixed. It'd be such an interesting experiment to see whether that was true, right? I mean, I, I would do anything to convince the New York <laughs> Times to try it just for a week and see what happens. Just, just yeah. you know, can you get them all to become slavish devotees <laughs> in the New York Times? It would be an unethical experiment, but it would be, certainly be interesting. Yeah. Um, but if that's true, I mean... I mean, they're unreachable, though. That's not scary because they, they just want to hear what they want to hear. But why? Why do people want to hear this bullshit when there are true, beautiful, and interesting things to hear? I think some of it goes down to the, the breakdown of the liberal arts we were talking about earlier. People don't have a good grasp on how to think critically. They, don't, they aren't broadly read the way um, the educated classes used to be. Um, they don't have a good feel for how to interact graciously with someone who disagreed with them. Um, and they're too specialized to talk with anyone intelligently who isn't in their field. I think that's too much of a problem. As I'm sure that's not the only how does I agree. And I think Vivek saying I see the same thing in India. I think there's also a thing. It's the, the sort of drug form of knowledge. You know, it's the, the being the contrarian is mm-hmm. the sort of the cheap alternative to being the intellectual that, you know, sort of adopting this position and saying that you see through everything and mm-hmm. you, know, you found the source of truth in late night YouTube videos is the same thing right. as wanting to be sort of well-read and expert because you, you mm-hmm. feel like you've struck on this hidden knowledge and it, it's fake and it's fake within you and it's fake in itself. Yeah, the phrase, I've done the research, is like the go-to phrase for all these people on this conspiracy side. You hear this yeah, from all these people who've lost their relatives to QAnon. Like, yeah. So, yeah. I've done the on research. one side and check your privilege on the other. Yeah, I've seen sort of <laughs> family, friends and things go down that rabbit hole. And it, there, was, there, was, there was someone um, in the UK, I can't remember who it was, that wrote a good article that was sort of scathing in a lot of these things of its moderately educated people who feel they failed in life, who get drawn into these conspiracy theories because it sort of excuses, you know, the great cabal excuses why they've not been as successful as they hoped they'd be. And it's the sort of moderately intelligent that chase that desire to have seen through the whole thing. I think the def- mm. it's not success or lack thereof that is, defines the personality type. I think it's the narcissism scale. The, the need to believe that you have an insight superior to other people is just, is, is, is a narcissistic need. Yes. 
And I think that, that <laughs> applies up and down the socioeconomic ladder. I think you don't need to go that far. I think it's enough to look for something because when the world is so complicated and you don't get it and you need to pay attention and to consider so many other people's points of view or needs, then at the end, it cannot be true. You look for the shortcut and you look for the simple world. It's also why the Cold War worked so better, so much better, because uh, it was easier. So if I have to understand people of color and minorities and be politically correct, no, this must be a conspiracy. It cannot be that complicated. The world is easy. The world is simple. I, I want to hear what Peter has to say about this, because you grew up in a country that was, that was it had a completely different development trajectory and a completely different educational trajectory. And yet we're seeing the same phenomena. Why? You know, looking back at the 70s and the 80s, which is when I really grew up, and then we saw the changes in the 90s. You know, if you turn around and ask me why I, as a journalist back in 1991, wrote so wholeheartedly in support of liberalization while everyone in the newsroom around me was saying that this is the end of the world. This is the end of India. I don't know. I, I don't quite, I can't quite answer the question why it was in 1980 that I would be reading Ayn Rand while my closest friends were going around with a copy of the Communist Manifesto. I, I don't know. I really don't know. And today I've got a friend. I have these arguments with him every day and I've, I've known him for 30, 30 odd years and I fear it's going to be a fight any day. Uh, he's an investment banker, a very successful investment banker. And he simply refuses to believe anything on economics or anything on capitalism or anything else that doesn't come from a place like the Cato Institute or anything on climate change that doesn't come from the Heartland Institute. So we have these massive arguments on almost every day these days. And I simply can't do anything to make him read a book that would actually give him a more rounded view. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just simply saying that he needs a more rounded view. I've got a journalist friend, an ex-boss, a really well-trained economist. He's, he's done stints all over the world and he's come back. He's now in the 60s. But now he's become the editor of the extreme right-wing Hindu magazine. Even for someone who's grown up in the Hindu faith like me, it's, it's crap. But I can't speak to him anymore because, I mean, we, we can have some, a little bit of social chit-chat, but 20 years ago, I could talk to him about politics or economics or something else. And today it's hard for me to speak to him because he just turns it around into a conversation about this is what happened in ancient India. And right, that's a belief. There isn't, there isn't enough evidence that's come up from archaeology or anything else that says that this is really what happened. And these guys just follow two or three 
news sites around the country. They don't want to listen to anything else beyond that. And mind you, they are all highly educated people. And they're all people who worked in a way globally. I think what you're saying is important because it immediately falsifies every theory we just came up with about what's going on in, <laughs> in Europe and the United States, right? I mean, it's not that we're not all studying Shakespeare because no one in India studied Shakespeare to begin with. No, I Except did. For- My generation did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that there, there was, there was the daughter, famous film Shakespeare, Walla. My daughter did it seven years ago. So that's not Yeah, true. but about as many people studied Shakespeare seriously as studies, study the Ramayana in the United States, right? Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are some. <laughs> it, it's, it's not that there's some mystery cultural glue that used to hold us together and yeah, our yeah. education system broke down and now, yeah. now it doesn't hold us together because it, the phenomenon has to, whatever our explanation is, has to account for the fact that this is happening in very different places. Yeah, well, well, what Vivek describes seems to be a new uh, tribalism, or it's a new yeah. sort of tribalism that in different flavors has infected several countries. Not just several. What I can't get is what's actually causing this tribalism. That's right. Yeah. I, just some, I mean, I can't get somebody who's this investment banker friend of mine, he's... He's done his MBA from an American university in the early 90s. He's lived there. He's worked there. He's worked in Switzerland for a few years. What, what makes these guys change? I mean, I can't say age because I'm about the same age as they are. Yeah. This may I be a stretch, but if you have a narcissistic personality, then things are much worse, I think, than they ever were in history because there's so many... With the global media, you're comparing yourself to these winners who are sitting at the very top of 8 billion people. So in a sense, almost everyone on Earth is a loser, right? There's Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, a few other people up on top. And even if you made $100 million, you're still not at the top, and you'll never get there. Maybe some people just can't take that. I don't know. I, th- I think also, though, um, I'm just sort of throwing this out there, an idea I've I've been toying with for a while in various guises is are we looking at this the wrong way around is the last say 50 years the exception and you know it was a time of unprecedented acceleration in prosperity it was a time of largely unprecedented peace for a large chunk of the, the globe but because we're so steeped in it you know you see as normal <laughs> what you saw and is actually this a just a regression to the mean. Sure. The 19th right. century is certainly full of many conspiracy theories and people believing all sorts of crazy yeah. ideas. Oh, I also agree. It seems to me that it's always been, I, my thought has always been that, it, that everything has always been this way. There's just sort of been anomalous for the past, the past century, maybe. Regarding the question that, that you were raising Vivek about why is everything, why is there this crystallization into these kinds of tribalisms so pervasively? I mean, perhaps the answer is partly in the thesis of the social network, which is that the, the nature of these 
communicating media that have newly come into everyday experience of uh, so many people, um, you know, in the last, what, 10, 15 years have changed the way ideas crystallize, I guess you could say. So, so are you saying that it's because of social media, the social network, whatever you call it, there's been so much of an information overload that our brain cells can't process it anymore. And so some- I, but not, it's not about information overload. It's more about creating echo chambers. And about algorithmic reinforcement. And yeah. machines yeah, yeah, that's, built- there. that's there. That's yeah. there. Capture attention. Yeah, but it's like that's like a generator. It's um, uh, there's some buzzword for this that I'm escaping me. It's a it's a X Y Z generator. It it uh, chaos I mean, generator. Yeah, it mm-hmm. can exponentially accentuate the difference. Uh, the uh, you know this uh, crystallization into opposing, almost uh, caricatured oppositional ideas. If it's exponential, we're screwed because everyone's learned the real meaning of an exponential function recently, haven't they? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody should. May I suggest that maybe it's also the frustration of uh, the lack of an audience. When uh, social media appeared, everybody was thrilled. Everybody was uh, uh, accumulating new friends, uh, meeting everybody. And then they realized that they still had those five likes a day that nobody cared about what they show. They show their photos and nobody cared. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. some <laughs> alternative ideas, some alternative facts. Like committing suicide online for likes. Yeah, people mm-hmm. behaved on social That's media. What I was thinking. Like they were people on are TV. crushed by this. Yeah, because people are crushed it, it by that, right? Because I think a lot of people realized how in few, insignificant in they years, actually are. It changed completely. When yeah. everybody was happy of being on social media, then everybody was angry. People have always fought over the internet every, every time from the beginning. But this, uh, this frustration was new and was like uh, furious. They behaved like they were on TV. Finally, I have an audience. Look at me. And the way they comment or they react to comments is a telltale, I think. So this uh, lack of attention is devastating for people. And I think it also plays mm-hmm. a role in this, uh, well, we can call it Trumpism, but it's everywhere. As we know, every country has its own version of this. Uh, this, uh, this periphery, the, the rural communities, going so much with so much anger against the cities, the so-called elites, the so-called experts, people who know more than us, who say that you are more than me. One of the the, the, the most infamous slogans of uh, the the Five Star Movement in Italy, that's the quintessential populist movement in Italy, was "One is worth one." to say that every vote, every opinion was the same. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, it's not true, because we can see now, like our foreign minister was selling uh, drinks in, in the stadium, and uh, Merkel uh, is a physician, and it makes a difference. There's a big difference. But still, that was the dream of, of, of this enormous mass of uh, frustrated people. I, my opinion is worth as yours, even if yeah. I don't know anything about your and Berlusconi is really a pioneer of the merger of the media, mm-hmm. the media phenomenon, and the political phenomenon. Another way, all of us debating the subject here actually live in a country where there is free press. And how would someone in China actually look at this? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I wanted. I, I wish so much we had someone from China on this call. In any sort of a country where there isn't a free press would probably look at this whole thing quite differently and would probably have quite different experiences. Oh, I, I think if we had Turks on the call, they'd be talking the same way. Of course. Of course yeah. they would. But I'm wondering but, about but, China. Yeah, yeah China's, the, China's the big interesting question. What the hell is going on over there? My impression, my impression about China is that uh, there's a tremendous amount of communication uh, that's not published, that is communicated through, uh, I guess, I, I think, I forget what they call it, but it's something like WhatsApp, you know, that yeah. people talk, one person talking to another. And, uh, and so they manage to communicate a tremendous a lot that never sees its way into print. Yeah, I mean, it's a developed, a fully developed internet. It's just not this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Um, it, it would be so interesting to have a good correspondent in China if we could protect him or her. Um, okay. I, I don't know if we could, but it would be so interesting to have someone who could really talk about this with us right now. It would be really interesting to have people from Latin America who are you know, who've had many experiences of populist regimes becoming more democratic. You know, there, there's some p- perhaps things to learn from that. And it would be super interesting to have people from throughout Africa and the Arab world and from Israel and the Nordic countries, which everyone believes are the only countries that are doing okay. It's not quite true, but I mean, th- these perspectives would be really interesting. And by the way, Claire, your assistant is amazing. Isn't she? She is. She's, she's, she's listening and she's got a lot of thoughts. She'll share them. She with paid a lot of attention in the beginning. Then she's okay. Usually. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't see any animals on the screen. She waits. And I, mean, I, have to, I have to show her hours of bird videos you know, when she gets bored. Just to <laughs> well, we have a representative of the canine. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, hi, buddy. Hey, Daisy, He's lovely. Daisy, Daisy, look here. Aww. Look here, stupid. <laughs> no, I, I, this, I, this is actually Kali. Everyone's going away to get mm-hmm. their pets now. Can you see my turtle? Okay. Oh my goodness. That's so cool. Oh goodness. Quite a big turtle. What's his name? My daughter calls him Chiro. Chiro. I think he should be our mascot. <laughs> yeah, why not? He's supposed to be lucky. Well, we're globalists, and as we know, the globe rests on a turtle, which rests on a turtle, which rests on a turtle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>